0: And then oil. I think I'm going to start with the oil because I actually w- was focusing on that about three times already in the uh, in the podcast. And there's just one extra thing I just like to mention about it. And I, I did touch on it a bit. It was the idea that when when the oil crash happened and we had negative oil prices, I did indicate that it represented like a big problem for. The petro uh, nations, like uh, like Russia, and uh, and especially the uh, United uh, Arab Emirates, given that's a big percentage of the revenue. But today, I really want to focus on what the Fed is doing <laughs> right now, like uh, in relation to some of the ETFs, because it's going beyond what they usually do. They're usually like when they do monetize the debt and they start doing their QE they usually typically go out and you know try to prop up failed assets so they'll usually prop up the big market and the big market is the the bond market so you know so what they were propping up was the idea of these junk bonds you know these high yield bonds that got basically decimated when uh, this crisis was uh, underway because Uh, you know, a a good percentage of the junk bonds are tied to the energy industry. And given that the prices went negative, you could just imagine the implications that it would have on on bond yields. If if these companies can't attract the necessary capital to continue surviving, then the only way uh, in a supply and demand kind of economy to attract the capital would be to increase the yields. But if the yields go too high, it's it's problematic for paying back interest rates and in a world where the rest of the rates are extremely low. And that could put a lot of pressure um, you know, on a company, especially when demand is dwindling. So you're not getting the revenues, but you have to pay out uh, high interest rates. That's just a recipe for a disaster. So Mr. Fed comes to the rescue. Well, you know what? It's just the problem with all this is that you know the Fed should be coming to the rescue to help viable companies survive, to prop up ETFs. Like they're now, fo- they're now literally going into the market and and you know and 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 trying to uh, use investment banks or you know like for example like a BlackRock. They're they're they're, they're use, like BlackRock, which which has certain ETF products. They're actually going to be working on behalf of the Fed to buy back, to buy up some of their products. Huge conflict of interest. Uh, and, and it's not just gonna be in, you know, in one group. As this, this um, crisis evolves, and the Fed tries to prop up the economy with this QE, it's just gonna cause a, uh, a misallocation of capital. And unfortunately, it's the taxpayers' cap- <laughs> money. Where did you,
1: where did you find out about this? I would love to have uh, that link in the, in the show notes. It wasn't in one
0: thing. So there it's, it's not there. I kind of took everything together that I've read in the past while and kind of made sense out of it. So there isn't a link. Okay. The link is this, this is, this This is the the link. This This is is the missing link. link. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's what
1: we should rename the podcast to.
0: This is the link. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, <laughs> anyways all right Continue. So sorry the point is the fed is buying up toxic assets now these assets are now they're buying up etfs and and one of them you know that they have an eye on like they they've always had an eye on the jnk the junkie like the high yield junk bond etf but also and you should just see how that rallied off that low <laughs> after they yeah but you know the signs of what they're going to do with it and then uh also the USO, USO is the United States oil fund. It got decimated. Like it's, it's down at $2.13. I mean, back in 2014, it was up at like 38 bucks. I mean, just, it was up at 12 bucks back in December. And even like in February, it was up at around 11.40. So this just crushed completely. So the Fed's gonna come to the rescue. They come to the rescue of the most toxic assets. Now, the reason why I say this is toxic, this is the worst asset, could possibly be the worst asset on the planet to own as an investor in today's environment, and for one big reason. Now, there's no such a thing as an asset that's the worst to own at all times because anyone could take a chart, scroll back to the past and say, look, the market rallied during this point, so how could you say it's the worst asset always to own? It's not. So you have to understand the context of the environment that we're in. The environment we're in today is super contango that's what it's called in the in the um, futures market when you have the price of oil in the near term contracts or in the present in the cash market being priced lower than the actual future value of what the further out contracts that people are going to pay for those further out contracts why would that be the case okay well like we talked in our last episode there is a collapse in demand for oil and energy products because nobody is doing anything. I mean, you look outside, I mean, in areas that normally have pollution, there's no pollution. So, okay. So collapse of demand, but at the same time, a massive increase in supply due to the fact that uh, the OPEC uh, group decided, Hey, you know what? We're more interested in market share than the market price. So we're just going to keep on pumping this out. Well, the shale players in the US are also a big player. They can't just shut off their pumps like I talked about last time. So they've got like many you know, many months of crude oil in the pipeline, a multi-step you know, process before they could unwind. It's You have the situation where prices, they have to get rid of that, that oil. And uh, in order to get rid of the oil, you have to pay somebody to take it away because there's nowhere to store it. So if they're paying for it to take it away, then the prices are going to either go negative or go down substantially. Where the further out contracts, people know eventually uh, the economy is going to come is going to come back somewhat because people are not going to stay in their house forever. And we already know there's talk about opening the economy, so it would only make sense that the future, you know, the further out contracts would have a higher price. So that's called contango. When it's the other way around, most of the time. The price in the near term is less than the future because it costs. uh, Well, it's not totally. It's not 100% true because you still have to store uh, the oil. So when you store the oil, there's a cost for storage. So it so the price is a little bit higher in the future. But it's called super contango because prices on the supply side are high and the demand side is low, causing prices to fall. Exponentially in the present and only rise a bit rel- and be worth more in the future. If it's not in contango, it's called backwardation, but this is super contango. So, why in a super contango market would the USO be one of the worst ETFs to invest in if you're trying to track the price of oil? Because a lot of people today, you know, there's a lot of people that are value investors and they think, hey, you know what? buy when blood's on the street that's like the talk all the time but nobody ever does it right like i mean yeah there's somebody that does it but you always hear about the guy afterwards and you don't know how much he actually bought but the point is this is blood on the streets negative prices or at least two dollars on this etf so it's like okay well how could i participate how could i take advantage that would be a trader's view how could i take advantage of this volatility i don't have enough money to trade in the futures market so why don't I just go look up the ETFs that are available in the market? And they're going to see in many websites, it's going to say, oh, the good old USO. You know, and they'll, they'll tell you all about how the USO performed tremendously well. you know, Back in like you know, 2007, look at that rally. If you would have bought it, you would have made so much money from that drop area. The difference today is that when the market's in contango, the way the, this ETF is constructed, it's it, it's it's constructed, uh, let's put it this way, quite a bit differently than a person would imagine. What happens is at the end of each period, the contract expires and you have to roll out the contract to the following period. But because the price is significantly and incrementally higher on each period going out when you're in a super contango, you're actually losing money at an accelerating rate and there's, it diverges with the price of oil. So you could think you're going to be tracking, you know, tracking the price of oil, but you're really only tracking the price of oil when you're not in this kind of contango environment. And, you know, even then you're not optimally because an ETF is never, you know, it's never matching, but, uh, but especially in this environment where there's such a difference between the expiration month, and then the next month out that you have to roll to to maintain this ETF product, you are at a massive disadvantage and you're going to have an enormous tracking error. So if you think you're actually investing in oil by buying this ETF while it's in super contango, you're absolutely not. You're just, uh, you have a wasting asset. It's almost like paying massive taxes with with a huge handicap against you. So what I, w- what I would suggest is if you actually want to participate in uh, an improvement in oil, then you know, I, I would rather just focus on companies in the energy space that actually you know, got w- destroyed. And if you think that they have a sufficient balance sheet to weather this storm, then it would be smarter doing that. Because they would be more leveraged to an increase in the price of oil coming out of this. The only tricky thing about dealing with uh, companies that are in the middle of a crisis like this is that not many companies are going to survive. So if you don't do the proper fundamental analysis on the equity, you could get slaughtered. Uh, my suggestion is why jump in the middle of a train wreck? Focus on where the money's going. And you know, just this past week, there was a market call out I've had this call out for ages, but I mean, it just came out in the mainstream. Bank of America is suggesting that the price of gold is going to go to three thousand. And uh, yeah, it, it, we've been it, talking it about is. this for weeks. Yeah, for well, yeah, and and also, I was I've been talking about when gold made a low back in uh, you know pre two thousand when it was down at like in the two hundreds. I was pounding the table on gold to uh, quite a few people. They were just laughing. They say gold's useless. It's like, and then we had like, we've, we've been in a bull market since. It's just that long-term bull markets take a long time to evolve. And as an investor and as a retail trader, or just even a professional manager that wants to see results on, a, on at least a quarterly basis, timing's important because people become very impatient. It's kind of like, hey, you, you. Well, I mean, people could relate to it. We're stuck in the house. We want to get out. So we're impatient even before we're necessarily ready to go out because not all the contact tracing has been done. But it's the same thing in the market that you know you may have a view of something big happening, but if you're not um, focused on participating in it where you're going to actually receive some kind of gain within a, within a quarter or two quarters, people tend to get despondent and move on to other opportunities to only find out that whatever they whatever mistake they made in that opportunity they make it in the next opportunity they find out see i was right and then finally the market moves the second they leave because to make money in the market it's not just about being right it's about you know having the resolve and being able to show up kind of just in time so that you're not waiting so long that you get you kind of lose interest and that's the whole idea here we're trying to provide you with best in class opportunities to best express a thematic view in the marketplace. And and so for example, the thematic view with the whole idea of this currency debasement and monetization of money across the world by all the central banks is is causing a lot of uh, money, not just to go into hard assets, but to flee emerging market currencies and go into the strongest um, reserve currencies in the world like uh, the US dollar. And because of that, there's so many countries in the world that are in a situation where they're gonna be in a massive inflationary or hyperinflationary situation because their currency is like worthless. And uh, the only way for them to protect themselves is to buy gold. So this is not just like a typical gold story, like, oh, the US dollar is falling and therefore gold is rallying. It's the opposite. The U.S. dollar is is so strong, yet despite that, gold is rallying, which is really bullish because gold usually goes down. It's one of the factors that take gold down is a rising U.S. dollar. But there's two other factors that take gold up. And the two other factors are worldwide instability, central bank buying from emerging markets and other developed markets that have their currencies suffering because money is moving to the United States. And they need to find a way to protect the capital without having all their assets in in a foreign country, and the best way to do it is to own gold because gold doesn't have it's it's not a geography it's it's its own asset so yeah so that that's another reason and and the other reason is inflation or deflation, and like I discussed in the last market call we we're going through a period of major deflation because of all this you know, all the deleveraging that's taking place, people aren't going to pay off, be able to pay off their debts. There's going to be numerous bankruptcies. The banks are going to call in those loans when the loans are called in and the assets have to be sold off. They come off the books of the bank. They can't be used to repackage as like, you know, as uh, mortgage-backed securities necessarily. They may actually just end up having to sell it at, 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 at dimes on, on, on the dollar. And when you get that kind of thing, you get massive deleveraging in the financial system. But at the same time, because the supply chain bottlenecks in the world and the repatriation of assets and the moving of capital and and people back to the positions in domestic areas to produce domestically so that they're not at risk to foreign actors, that's going to cause a lot of the... the, um, the cheap labor costs that they were getting uh, overseas to return to you know um, you know according to labor laws here, you're going have to pay a minimum wage, which is several orders of magnitude higher than in the uh, emerging economies. And when that happens, input costs from labor are a huge component. and just the fact that uh, we're going to have supply chain bottlenecks, less supply and uh, same or more demand. At at some point as we improve, coming out of this deflationary area, we're gonna have deflation in assets, as I said before, and inflation in consumer goods. Worst combination. Now, I was just looking at a chart today, just always trying to just see like what the 10 year yield is saying, because you know that give you a pretty good idea of when gold is gonna go from just being a bull market to being a, a parabolic bull market and a uh, parabolic bull market means like when gold could actually go you know to 5 or 10,000. A normal bull market would be like the call bank of america is making. Oh yeah, let's rally up to you know let's go to 3,000. You know, that's that's a normal bull market. I mean not everyone has the opinion that it's going to 3, I certainly do. But I don't think it's about a magic number. I think it's just protecting your capital and hedging against all these risks in the world that go beyond just what's happening in you know, in the nominal value of the equity markets, but also in the um, the value of your purchasing power. So I'm going to just put up a chart of the TNX. Different people will have a different symbol depending on their platform. But on my platform, the TNX, is the uh, Chicago Board of Option Exchange 10-Year Treasury Note Yield. I'm looking at it on where each bar represents seven trading days. So it's not a weekly bar because that would be five trading days. This is seven trading days. That's the optimal time horizon to view uh, the the trend or potential reversals of trend in the 10-year yield. The reason why I'm interested in that is because right now the 10-year yield is falling apart. It's been falling apart since October you know, 31st, 2018 um, in that area, in the neighborhood between, in, a, in the October area, it made a high of around... Uh, and a quarter percent ever since uh, late 2018 it made a low of 0.4 percent at that mark you know in the um, in that first week of uh, March when we had that major major uh, market crash and because of that the you know uh, you know people were buying uh, bonds and that was taking the yields down and some of the people buying the bonds is is the Fed, the central banks. So the thing is, this move, whether the move is done or whether there's a lot lower to go, meaning negative or whatever, the key number to watch for to see when this thing is going to transition from a period of deflation to inflation, the only thing that would confirm a change in my view would be move, Um, Either a move above 2.03% and that's so far away. It's almost, you know, there's, I mean, I I don't want to say there's no point talking about it. I mean, you know, weirder things have happened, but if for whatever reason, and I would not count on this at all, the trend is down or sideways, that uh, if it was to get above 2.03% or 06 percent again, anytime after September, let's say the 14th of this year, that would switch us from a you know put us into a stabilizing mode where the down move is is no longer in play. And we could then go through a consolidation into next uh, spring. And if at some point, this is the most important number to focus on, these are the two numbers. So uh the number would be if prices w- were to uh to rise above 1.55% after. The, uh, the third week of May, 2021, that would cause the market to spike up to probably $2, 2.41%. And then the real kicker would be if price was ever to get above 254. So nothing else matters in my book, like 254, 255 in percentage terms on the 10-year yield. If that was to happen any time, in the summer of 2021 or after you would see a massive rally in yields which would be a sign that there's inflation in the economy from all the money printing and that would be that well that that would be very devastating to uh parts of the market especially the high yield uh uh, market very devastating it would probably spike up pretty quickly to 4.75 percent. Now in an environment where we're used to yields it's 0.61 and imagine breaking 2.5 and almost doubling in a very short period of time uh, that would be um, devastating to parts of the market. Not only would it be devastating but it would it, it, it would probably suck capital out of other parts of the world which the U.S. is tied to which indirectly would probably cause some serious problems in the bond market. And uh, that would rattle bond market investors. So uh, just something to think about. But at this point, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because uh, one of the topics I wanted to talk about today was uh, gold and silver. We talked about it a few times. The the component I, I wanna talk about is the XAU. Uh, that's the Philadelphia Gold and Silver Sector Index. Now in a real bull market, this should be breaking out. And it's, it's now showing signs. Like it has already shown signs for quite a while, but it's really at the cusp of something very interesting. So it was as low, for example, as low as uh, 62.70. And right now it's sitting at 117.60. So that's like a massive move for an index. I mean, even if we were to get a normal retracement, even a big retrace, even if we were to go back down to ninety six fifty it doesn't change the fact that we're in this multi year bull market that's breaking out in the x a u now the thing is, if you want to invest in the market and make you know do the best and not underperform because so many people like will have a view in in a certain you know um on a certain theme in the economy, and in this case it happens to be gold, they'll try to find stocks that they think are gonna beat the index. And you know it's very hard to beat an index at the beginning of a bull market because almost everything is going up because prices have been so devalued that the asset allocation of a lot of the funds are so small in terms of uh, their allocation to gold and silver that all it takes is a small reallocation shift from other assets that are not either not performing as well or have performed tremendously well and they're just trying to rebalance. And given the the economic environment that we're in, they all rebalance by just taking out a sliver of their profits, but a sliver of profits in a market that has huge liquidity compared to a market like gold. Like, let me just give you an example. The gold market, if you take all the gold that ever existed in the market, it basically, it would fit up into uh, basically two and a half swimming pools. So if you were to fill two and a half swimming pools or let, let's say two say two cubes, you know, uh, you're in a room that's a 10 by 10 room and you had two, by two 10 by 10 rooms filled completely with gold, that would represent all the available gold that ever existed. And that's, that would represent just about $10 trillion. That's pretty tiny compared to a worldwide economy that it, you know with, with we it's over 250 trillion dollars so if just a sliver of a reallocation was to happen you could see how the the small liquidity levels in gold could cause quite a big move in a, in a short period of time now if that's the case it basically means that almost every asset you know because there's a lot of etfs that are trying to track the price of gold or trying to track the gold miners or the, or the juniors. And when you have a lot of ETFs that track these things, they have to buy the underlying equities that are tied to anything that's moving gold. And when you do that, it tends to lift all boats. So it's really hard to beat the market if you have to find the one or two nuggets or stock ideas that are gonna be better than the average. It's, e- it's easier to beat the average when you're at the end of a move, because at the end of a, a bull market that may have been around for like 30 or 40 years or, or 10 or 15 years, and it, it really depends what time frame you look at it, but you know, you know, some of the equity markets in the world have been going up for, for decades. I mean, besides the, you know, besides the crash that we, we had in 2008 and 9, since then, it's been a rocket ship outside of the past couple of years of volatility, but in general, a rocket ship. So, you know, correcting, you know, uh, just having an allocation from a little out of equities in certain parts of the world or bonds and into gold, that would lift a lot of things. So which stock, how would an investor go about or a trader go about figuring out which equity would outperform? Well, one way is they could just go through all the different stocks, look at the charts, and make an assessment and then study the companies and see which ones are valued efficiently and which ones are producing, you know, have a good profile in terms of production going forward and cash costs being fairly low and good management. They could do all that stuff, but everyone's doing that. So what what I like doing as a last thing is, is looking at ratio charts. So I ratio chart is you're basically taking a, a symbol. So it would, be a company that you may be interested in. Let's, for example, take a company like Kinross Gold. So let's take KGC, Kinross Gold. And what I would do is I would go Kinross Gold divided by the XAU, because the XAU is a pretty good benchmark for the future direction of gold assets. And if I take an asset and divide it by the index, if that if that ratio is rising, it basically means that the, the, the asset on the numerator is actually going up faster or relatively outperforming the index. And that's exactly what you're trying to do when you're trying to produce alpha, which would be the outperformance of the benchmark. So I'm just gonna put up a chart of the KGC divided by the XAU. And right now, it's breaking out in a massive way. There's a number of them in the gold market and that have a profile that's pretty darn good. This is one of the better ones. Uh, and it's also a junior, which means that it, it, it could have a tremendous leverage to an increase in the price of gold. And they're involved in a lot of projects. They've been very active in terms of increasing production when, and, they, and they have a great history of being extremely timely terms of when they believe the gold market's going to ignite and they started doing certain activity recently that indicates that they have a strong belief that the gold market is going to be going a lot higher. Basically um, the ratio right now is sitting at uh, 0.06 and it looks as if the next move up should take it to a, about 0.13. So I'm expecting a, a doubling in terms of the speed that uh, well the magnitude that uh, the KGC could outperform the XAU. So if the XAU was to double, this thing would go up four times, you know, uh, you know, at at at, at minimum. So um, so just looking at KGC itself, I can make a case that the next major objective on KGC there's a couple. There's one in the intermediate term. That's at about 1078. Currently, it's at 680. And then you've got um, support above where we were at the lows, you know, j- above where we were in uh, March. So we clearly broke out very strong. Yeah, maybe 1070 to 1196 is resistance. I I, c- I can make a, an easy case that the the real true objective for this stock, without going too far ahead of ourselves, would be around 21 bucks. So which makes sense because, you know, a lot of the times in a bull market, the X you could double and and if it's gonna double that, then that would be like, you know, could go up four times. So that would be like, you know, it, it could go up to like close to 30 bucks, but I would say, for, you know, 21, 23 as a, you know, as a uh, intermediate to long-term investor. So I think this is the beginning of a mega bull market in Kinross Gold and also a mega bull market in the ratio chart of Kinross relative to the XAU. Yeah, that makes me feel good. So that basically means that if the XAU um, goes up, this goes up more. If the XAU goes down, this one either goes down less or if it does go down the same or adjusted for the beta the same, then it would recover faster and make new highs faster every time new money comes into the market. This is one of my favorite names. Um, in the in the gold space, just want to just uh, recycle back on just one thing we talked about last time. So I just want to go. Oh, to the, the TSX. Yes. So as I was saying, I would recycle back because I said something about the twenty ninth being an important time for this stock if things were to come together, and even if, and, but the, by the first week of May, I would expect some kind of you know high. So the market was. Uh, basically, I think it was around 14,200 area. I was mentioning a bunch of levels to focus on on the upside where resistance could come in. And one of the levels up was like 14,900 at the, at, the, at the higher end. And I'm basically looking um, the trigger event, like the trigger for the TSX, as opposed to the actual HIX. HIX is, is I already like it the way it is right now. But in terms of the TSX, if people are shorting it, I the I really love this this window. Um, There's a couple. So the TSX getting below fourteen thousand four thirty-three anytime after twelve twenty-eight tomorrow. And I'm not saying it's going below there. I'm just saying I'm not saying it's going below there tomorrow. It is going below there. That I am saying. Otherwise we wouldn't be forecasting a, a crash. But But when it does get below there, that's likely going to happen before the first week of uh, May is up or it's going to start, it's going to trigger. Like either it triggers at that level tomorrow or it just kind of just drifts. Let's say it drifts into the upper end, you know, like just kind of glides up gently on no volume like it's doing right now and driving up, let's say we get into like the first week of May. May fifth, it could be May first, May seventh. It doesn't really matter because the, the 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 resistance is rising very very uh, sh- in a shallow way, and there's not much that could. St- I mean, even if they were to prop and put a ton of money into this uh, into this economy and market and try to prolong this, uh, I just don't see how they could stop. A, a, you know, this up move how they could prevent this up move from turning into a down move. And usually the way the market does it after a big bounce off of the bottom, uh, it, it usually does it, the market kind of slows down, consolidates into the high. And sometimes consolidations happen when there's a big spike, like there's one last hurrah. That's what I was talking about in the last show, that usually the market makes one last big push up Before the reversal, and we were expecting that reversal sometime at the end of the month, first week of May. So we're getting, we're starting to get that little spike. Now, that spike, if it wants to, yeah, okay, if it wants to go into 40,900, fine. But then the consolidation, even if they tried to keep this up, I just don't see how they could keep this, like by the 19th of May, this market would, (laughs) if for whatever reason it was just hanging on threads. And it just sat like pretty like flat, consolidating in a volatile range and then just basically giving it up. It would fit in very well with the idea that we're expecting some kind of major volatility event, um, like the first phase of it um, in May to the middle of June. So certainly there's lots of time between the 19th of May to you know into June. And this is a long-term thing also. This doesn't just end there, but there will be bounces just like we've had in the beginning of march they'll just be from lower levels looks looks very 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 negative to me but if i had to to bet on it it's gonna it's not gonna be able to hold up and whatever it's doing right now will be given up in like there'll be one bar that will be orders of magnitude bigger than 20 days of a market action so you'll have like 20 days of market action that will be wiped out in a matter of a few bars and then just um probably bad economic news and all kinds of terrible things, you know, coming out with that. So, so in terms of the HIX, which is the uh, inverse ETF again on the TSX, uh, it's trading at 565. Again, it's, it's looking like, you know, a move above 578, especially like after May the 5th would be really big deal. Also um, a push above 580 anytime, uh, from tomorrow onward would, you know, push this thing higher. In terms of the downside, it's basically what I talked about the last time. So you've got like, there's all kinds of support at uh, 550, 540, 530. But this is an extremely liquid, um, uh, e-liquid ETF, which works to your advantage when there's um, a sell-off in the market, because there'll be a lot of buyers coming in, driving this up. So considering the rally in the past few days, this market um, actually has not moved down very much. It's actually just drifting on very light volume. So I like the looks of this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, the
1: things that you brought up, uh, the ultimate face mask construction, what were you talking about when uh, when you were talking about that?
0: Basically, right now there's a lot of people that, aren't sure exactly what kind of uh, face mask uh, they should use to get like really good protection. Cause a lot of the masks right now are pretty much anywhere from 50% or, or less upwards to like 60% or 70% protection. Mm-hmm. And it could be far less than that if it's not fitting properly. But I don't think a lot of people put a lot of effort into figuring out what kind of materials they should be using. To get the ultimate kind of protection. Ultimate meaning as close as possible to uh, something like an N95. Now you're not going to be able to replicate an N95 because the processes that go into that are extremely uh, onerous and Mm -hmm. there's only like five manufacturers of one of the machines that's required to actually make that. Well don't they also have
1: to fit it? They have to
0: customize
1: And fit it to your conform to your face. Like they'll put you in a room and make sure that you can't smell anything.
0: Yeah, exactly. But there are but there are certain fabrics that could actually do a lot better than just the makeshift design that people are using. So I thought it would it would make sense. You know, just discuss that briefly. Sure. Based on my research, this is based on people that have actually tested these materials. Like actually, you know, using um, you know special kinds of sensors to actually see what kind of particles that are let through and and also testing it in terms of the usability, like uh, is it gonna be too hot if you wear this? Is it gonna feel good to the face? So uh, there's a few different samples that work, but you want at least two layers in the outer layer, typically, uh, and then also you want an inner layer. So optimally like three layers. So, and the type of layers you want is basically one layer that is really tightly woven, kind of cotton sheet, that's pretty thick. So you want a thick cotton sheet and and then you want to add, have two layers of like something like polyester and, and spandex kind of material. So that's one of the kind of materials. Another um, type of material that actually is um, interesting is bamboo because it's- uh, Bamboo. It resi- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty good in terms of uh, being itch resistant. And And I know it has
1: uh, antibacterial properties as well.
0: Yeah, yep. And also like moisture uh, properties, so it absorbs that. So that too. And uh, also uh, flannel is another interesting material. And actually, uh, some people were testing uh, different kinds of cloths in this company called uh, the y Pal X-80 Towel Cloths. They, they tend to um, be really good, like in terms of uh, absorbing uh, moisture and it's super durable. And they are also, a lot of the other cloths are actually dangerous uh, because of the fibers. Mm-hmm. You could actually be inhaling lead in small quantities, or, or if you rewash the, the fibers, they could actually start leaching Uh, So it just happened to be that the Ypal X 80 towel cloths and I have nothing to do with the company. So just if anyone's listening here, it's like, I'm not supporting this company one way or the other. I don't, (laughs) I don't know anyone at the company other than it just. Secret stakeholder. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But my research points to that specific product being, you know, everyone should just look into the details, but it has a history of actually not having a problem in that area. And you could like, rewash it and all that kind of stuff so that's interesting Um, another um, also cotton quilt cotton polyester like uh, batting and also uh, natural silk are all top candidates for that and a lot of the like what you'll come across is a lot of the makeshift masks if you already have like if somebody already has one and they don't want to invest in anything else and they think it's good enough a lot of them have like a um an area where you could add a filter in, into a pocket on the, on the uh, makeshift mass. And some people were like thinking, Oh, well, you know, should I take a vacuum cleaner kind of filter? And that, that's actually toxic. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's not good because of the fiberglass content. Mm-hmm. Plus uh, some people were looking at, uh, you know, in terms of coffee filters, those are better, <laughs> but the, but, but, but the ultimate, would be a similar type of material that's used in the N95 so nothing's going to be exactly like N95 because they use this uh, it's an electrostatic non-woven polypropylene uh, fiber that's what they use and they call it the MERV 13 filter so if anyone's trying to to really understand like the, the mechanics they could go type that into the internet and they'll give you all the specs on it but there's about 24 manufacturers that actually produce this meltdown kind of well. It's called melt blown material. Okay, so basically what they do is they they have this like ninety inch conveyor belt, and it's it's coated in layers of plastic fibers, and basically they're fused together in in such a way that uh, it's so tight that nothing could get between it. So or well, not nothing, but nothing too small. Whereas if you're getting like, if you're going to be using like knit fibers, not as good because there's holes between the knits. And that's where small uh, particles could come through. So if you are going to use something knit, you want it to be like a tightly woven kind of knit fabric Mm -hmm. uh, that's protective against uh, humidity and stuff like that. And that you could wear in your face, it's not going to like irritate you. So, So the issue here is that there's, not many of those manufacturers, which is why there's such a delay. The big companies are 3M, Kimberly-Clark, Prestige, Ameritech, Honeywell. Those are like the big ones that produce it here. And then there's other ones in like Asia. But the actual machines, like domestically, there's, there's only 24 manufacturers. And I think five or six companies that actually melt, make the melt-blown material used By these manufacturers. So even if you had more people wanting to produce it with only five or six machines making it, uh, there's a supply issue there. So that's the issue. So how do we get around that? Did a little bit of research and there are some um, existing materials that you may already have in your house that are already pretty close to, to N95 kind of material in the sense that they're not electrostatic non-woven polypropylene fibers, but they are non-woven propylene fibers. And basically, if you go to um, Whole Foods, because I've gone there numerous times, I I pretty much live there for a while. When you go there, uh, they'll give you these bags that are like those uh, tightly woven. Paper bags? The paper bags? Not paper bags. No, 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 no. These are uh, propylene fiber bags. And uh, they, they don't, they're just look like normal bags. They, they seem like they're cotton, whatever. But they're, the way the stitching is, it actually, um, uh, you could put your food in there and it doesn't get, you know, doesn't get too warm or too cold. But anyways, these bags that they have there, they they are made out of the same kind of fibers. Like the closest thing that I could have, it could find that match to like an N95 mask. So oh, they're no not, kidding. yeah. So so if you're, so I'm not saying, hey, go, he, go take it and you're, you're good to go. It's N95. If you want to prove that, then basically construct the ultimate mass, like made out of three uh, layers based on what I've discussed, uh, and then put in this, uh, just cut out a piece from uh, the actual uh, grocery bag from uh, Whole Foods or wherever. It could be any grocery store that has those kind of uh, bags basically you cut that out and you put it in where the filter is in the pocket and between the the two or three layers and that additional filter you should be you know well and ex- you know you should be well on your way to being better than uh just about everything out there outside of a, an n95 so and the only way to prove it is if basically is to take it and have it tested i mean you probably go to here You'd have to go to a lab if you really want to, you know, if there are people that are in the, you know, in the business of making these, these masks to help the community, then I, I would suggest that they investigate, uh, maybe talk to, uh, to Amazon since they own Whole Foods, let them know about, Hey, you know what? You, you have a like a large inventory of product here that could be used to help people. And it's probably would be more useful helping people than actually just packing uh Groceries in it, so so it, it, that's that's interesting. So that's a, an area where grocery companies that produce those kind of bags and they have relationships with companies that may have a lot of those bags in stock could actually partner with these um, companies that are producing these makeshift masks to help the community, because I know still um, in many areas there's very little access to um, to good masks and protection, and if we're ever going to get out. Uh, and about and uh feel confident uh then i think it's best that uh, people wear the proper protection and i, I oh, think that sure. will go a long way oh so. well
1: they're th- they're already talking about opening up uh, at least here in florida they're talking about opening it up wednesday or thursday of this week i mean that that's given that Corona is still out there i, I kind of find that pretty interesting
0: um, yeah. I mean, the, the, here's, here's the issue. The issue is you got two sides. Like the side is that you can't separate the economy from the health crisis. I mean, you got, they're both together. Cause if somebody can't feed themselves or can't like function, then, you know, they're at risk to dying <laughs> or psychologically <you> <laughs> deteriorating to the point where their body becomes, let's put it this way, uh, more open to it attached to um, bad things in the environment, right? So mm-hmm. uh, an ordinary virus that wouldn't be so bad, but your immune system shop shot because you're worrying because you're not going to have, you know, food to put on the table, then that is definitely not going to help the situation. So like, I can understand Compounds. where the governors are coming from. Right. Okay. So I get that. But at the same time, from just like the pure theoretical point of view, like they just aren't there. They could be there in like within the next month. Like, I think by the, based on everything that I'm looking at in the research, if people were just more patient until the middle of June and let them do their, the proper testing and, uh, and, and the proper isolation and contact tracing, you would be much better off. And I think people are prematurely opening things, but it doesn't matter what I say, they're opening them. And, and, mm-hmm. and if that's the reality, then what could we do today? you know mitigate the problems uh, yeah like how could you mitigate it if that's already going to happen and i think this is something that could immediately be put to work like there are bags that haven't been used there's there's ways of using more efficient materials that are already in our existing store without having to order them from necessarily an n95 filter company so yeah so i'm just putting the call out to people that may have uh, connections with uh these grocery stores or people that are familiar with the fabrics that I mentioned, then it would be better to use those than just, you know, take a t-shirt and just, just make, put any kind of fabric together because it can make the difference between 50% protection and 90% plus protection. Mm-hmm. And also not looking like your face is ripped off at the end of the day. <laughs> so, Touched on this a couple times already. The COVID nineteen issues, like uh, I hear on the media all the time, people talking, they're still talking, and there's a lot of misconceptions in terms of like what this virus is and 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 why it's so different than anything else they've seen before. I've even seen people talk about, oh, it's just like the flu. Like that's what they said right at the beginning. And then then they kind of were listening to people, and you know, every day there's a new thing. And then they backtrack the next day. And I'm not talking about like the, um, the government. I'm just talking about everyone backtracking. Like You'll have people from academia saying one thing. And then the next day, well, they get more data in. So they're not exactly lying. They just, well, it's one of two things. Either bad analysis. Sometimes you get these researchers that are not doing their statistics properly. Mm-hmm. They're extrapolating information and assuming things when they don't have the proper control group. Okay, that's just bad. But then there's people that are legitimately doing their work. But because this virus has only been around for so long, there's, that there's not enough data to definitively say that this is exactly how it works. And then they get a little more data and it, ident- and it becomes more clear. It's kind of like in software engineering. You've got the agile development. Like you, you start with something and then as you incrementally go along, you get new iterations that improve what you're trying to do. And that's kind of what's happening. But the way the optics of it is when like the press takes hold of it and starts, you know, filtering it through the media, then by the time it gets to the consumer, um, it gets quite confusing. So I just wanna just just talk about a few of the things that I keep on hearing, and especially in the past couple days. And these are from pretty high-end doctors even that are saying things that aren't exactly right and I'm not saying that there they're anything about being a doctor, but there's, there's a lot involved in the virus. And, that, and it could have been misconstrued by the time it got to the media and, and the average person is interpreting it incorrectly. So these are the things, the number one things. Number one things is, oh, it's similar to the flu. Where do they get that from? Well, here's where they get it from. There's two ways of analyzing the information. You could look at the case fatality rate which is the number of deaths divided by the total number of cases. Or you could look at the, inf- the infection fatality rate, which is the, t- the number of deaths divided by the total number of infections. And to account for the total number of infections, they'll basically take, like, like they've done in New York and in, in California, they'll take antigen, which is like proteins on the virus, and they'll try to identify if, you, if those proteins are found in, in, your, uh, in your blood and the thing is when when you take this the uh CFR which is the case fatality rate it comes out to something between 0.1 and 0.2% for the flu okay and it comes out about 40 times higher for um when you do oh, yeah. that analysis for this virus you know so in terms of the CFR ratio it's it's far more um you know problematic Than the flu but here's where the confusion is coming from they're comparing apples to oranges that if you're going to compare to see if the flu is you know or if this virus is no worse than the flu you have to compare the cfr of the flu to the cfr um, of the uh, virus or you have to compare the ifr um, with the infection fatality rate of the uh, virus to the infection fatality rate of the flu. You can't compare the CFR of one with the IFR of the other, his apples and oranges. And that's where the misconception is, is coming through. And I don't think the media is properly addressing that. So I just want to just clear that up that the IFR, the infection fatality rate for the, um, the virus after, you know, doing a, uh, a sample on the, on the, uh, on the parties that actually have the antigens comes out to uh, z- to 0.5% for the virus. So then they're comparing that and they're saying, well, the flu is o- is be- is between 0.1 and 0.2%. So 0.2% is pretty close to 0.5. That's only like okay, it's like twice as much as the flu. It's like okay, that's not 40 times. But what they don't understand is that the IFR of the flu is actually 0.02%, which is actually 25 times less virulent than the coronavirus. So they've been comparing, the people that think it's close to the flu, they've been comparing the IFR of the virus, which is 0.02%, I mean, which is 0.5%. And they're comparing that to the case fatality rate of the flu, which is 0.1 to 0.2. So I hope everyone's listening to that. Number two, a lot of people are talking about, gee, this is such a strange virus. It's like it's like we're I thought it was just the the lungs that it affects. That's like, like, you know, this is what I'm hearing like on the news in the past couple of days. It's like and now it's like it's it's the kidneys and then it's like the uh it's the brain, it's like it's like everything. It's the the platelets, you know, it causes strokes in, 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 in young people. Uh, you know, that are in their 30s and 40s, just out of the blue, even if they have no symptoms. And they're just like, out of the blue, they just like pass away. So it's like, that's crazy. Like, what could it be? And they say, well, there's a lot we have to learn about it. But the reality is there's already a lot of people, a lot of research, like I'm well connected with a lot of key people that are doing research in the community. And they publish some of their reports before it becomes like official. So I'll look at those reports, see if there's discrepancies, and then finally, when it's official, I'll kind of merge all the information. Meanwhile, it hasn't yet filtered necessarily to the media. I, feel, I find that maybe sometimes there's a two-week delay. Occasionally, there's a two-day delay, but in this case, it seems to be delayed quite a bit. I'm sure there's scientists that, that some scientists obviously know about it. I'm, I could certainly tell you there's numerous doctors that don't have a clue what they're talking about when it comes to some of this latest research because they're too busy doing their clinical things that they can't focus all their time and on on virology and all the components of this thing. And I I just, hey, uh, this is so serious. I made it my business to connect with whoever I can who's at the leading edge. And what I found through through the research, and and I asked everyone to, you know, to verify that themselves, but they keep on saying that, oh, it's mainly the ACE2 receptor uh, the virus attaches to. And in our last call, in one of our previous calls, I mentioned that it's not just the ACE2 receptor, it also connects with, you know, that affects the T cells, uh, which is more related to kind of what HIV does in terms of like causing the immune response to go haywire and not actually either not produce, you know, the, the antibodies, Or if there are antibodies produced, they don't actually provide immunity. So those are things that people should be testing in terms of determining people that do have a, you know, that did get the virus, you know, that infected their T cells, that they should be breaking like their um, research studies into groups of people that were affected on the h 2 receptor or the T cells, because the way they are going to respond to immunity and, and have sufficient antibodies to counteract future variants of it, it's going to be very different for the two different classes of how they actually got the virus, whether it was through the T cells or whether it was the actual uh, ACE2 receptor. So I just, you know, putting that out to uh, to doctors to just focus on research in, in those areas, because I think that's one thing that could explain why this disease has no boundaries in terms of which organs it affects, because if it's not just affecting the uh, the ACE two, which basically is in the heart, in the uh, in the lungs, and, and and the kidneys, basically, if it attaches there, then yeah, you could end up getting a cytokine storm, which is basically a situation where number one, uh, your immune system goes bonkers. But that's not the same as it, as um, you know it entering through the T cells. And and having your immune system just basically be inhibited completely. And in that case, you can't fight the infection. And it just goes, you know, cause anything from like a deceptive shock to clotting. Like that's another big thing it causes. Like I I mentioned in the last call, but a lot of people are saying that um, it's it's interfering with uh, clotting. And a lot of people take drugs for clotting. So they're thinking, okay, well, if they take the thinners, it's going to be good. But that's not true in all the cases, because there's now research that shows that not only does it cause in some groups of people clotting, but it causes the reverse of clotting. It causes thinning. So people that are on special medication or thinners for their heart could actually end up bleeding out if they're not aware of how the virus is actually uh, interacting with the system. So. I just wanna put that out there. So if people are gonna focus on research, they should type in research associated with those topics that I just discussed and then uh, seek their uh, medical advice, you know, with regard to the best, uh, best options. So, so that clarifies a, a few of the things I uh, wanted to talk about um, with respect to that. Mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for actual investment advice.